Supposed to preach after that? <laughs> Man, good grief. Thank you, Ray. If so. <laughs> Man, okay, so Ray's got a concert coming up in this space. Is it, is it the 19th? Is that where it is? The 19th. You can come here and hear a lot of that. And I, I always want more. <laughs> Man, good night. Well, we are so blessed to have such a depth chart in this church. There are people serving in all sorts of crazy capacities all around this community from folks you can't see right now who are back uh, with the extended session with the kids, our Sunday school teachers, our wonderful administrative staff, our music team. We are so blessed. But y'all got stuck with me this morning. So <laughs> there, there's some faces I don't know. So that's, that's great. Good morning. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Jeremy Hall. I'm the associate pastor here at Townview. And some of y'all may not know who know me. I have a small role somewhere else at uh, Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life. I get to do a lot of fun stuff over there. And I get to meet a lot of cool and really interesting people and learn some really interesting stuff, but something I've learned in the process itself is that uh, the academy is very siloed. It's very insular. Uh, people stick to their fields, generally. Uh, doctors don't read geography textbooks. Uh, philosophers don't study botany. I, I don't know any plant philosophers, though I've met some philosophers that's like talking to a plant. But um, that's aside. Um, historians don't read about design, and theologians don't tend to study biology. Uh, but there's one voice that I've encountered in a lot of different fields, and we're going to kind of spend some time with him today. If you've been a theater student, or a religion student, a theologian, a philosopher, a storyteller, an educator, you might know this name. Um, a lawyer, all sorts of different fields have spent time listening to this guy. Uh, his name is Joseph Campbell. He's a 20th century philosopher obsessed with myth and storytelling. Now, his story uh, begins with a deep love for Native American mythology. He discovers it young uh, as a Cub Scout and just falls in love with these epics that the North American natives told. But then he found a love for Greek mythology and Norse cosmology and classic poetry and Mesopotamian religion and the stories of the Buddha and modern fiction. And he started to realize something very interesting. He discovered that from his perspective, they were all telling pretty much the same story. And he called this the monomyth. All great stories, he said, are participating in the monomyth. Um, in his most influential work, which is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, it sounds like a good movie. Um, the Hero with a Thousand Faces, the idea comes to be called The Hero's Journey. You've probably heard of that before. And uh, once this was popularized, and storytellers became aware of the idea of the monomyth, a lot of people rebelled against it. Uh, people tried to subvert it or ignore it or break it to prove that you can't hack good storytelling. You can't hack the human imagination. We're more interesting than that. Turns out we're really not. Uh, some of those stories are interesting, but they're not 
good. <laughs> They're not captivating. They haven't gripped us in the same way. But there's other stories that have interacted with it that have tried to tell maybe an inverted hero's journey or a failed hero's journey. And these stories, some of them are very good, but they don't grip us exactly the same way. The stories that many of us have come to love are stories that have very intentionally leaned into the monomyth, who have tried to follow the path. Uh, stories like Harry Potter or The Matrix, Men in Black, The Hunger Games, The Lion King, The Hobbit, Star Wars, all of these are very intentionally following the hero's journey. So how does the hero's journey work? I'm, thank you for asking. I was hoping to tell you about it. Well, there's 12 steps to it. And imagine it sort of goes in a cycle. It ends and begins in the same place. And that's with number one, the ordinary world. Everything makes sense here. It's the status quo. It's the stuff you know. Everything makes sense. But then number two, there's a call to adventure from some sort of outside force, usually followed by number three, a refusal of the call. The folks on the clicker are like on point today. I'm keeping Julie focused. Can't zone out on this one. Um, but their transition into following the story usually comes with number four, when they meet a mentor, um, often an encounter with someone older or wiser, um, an encounter with the divine. They're given a new skill. They're told a new story. They acquire a new weapon, something that helps them be brave enough to step five, cross the threshold and leave the ordinary world for the strange world, the different world, the scary world, where anything could happen, something they're unfamiliar with. And here, number six, they encounter tests, trials. They make new friends and new enemies. Number seven, on this journey, they approach the cave. They start to realize that this thing they're most afraid of, that they're on a collision course with it. Number eight, the ordeal. They're going to have to step into the cave and face what they're most afraid of. And if they can do this, they can, number nine, seize the prize. They can get the reward, the thing they need to overcome. And from here, they're on number 10, the road back. They start to think that the story is over, that they can go home. But 11 is still before them, the final battle the climax of the story in which the hero faces, faces a dangerous encounter, comes face to face with death, sometimes even loses. The final battle represents something far greater than the hero's own existence or story. It brings everyone into the story. But if they succeed, they can 12 return. They can go home, but changed. The language Campbell uses is with the elixir or with the boom. They have found the thing that they need and they return to their ordinary world changed and able to change that ordinary world for the better. So let's do this again, but with some of our cultural heroes in place. Give me that next one. Number one, Bilbo Baggins begins the story of the Hobbit, living a normal Hobbit life in the Shire. Numbers two and three, Luke Skywalker receives a call to adventure and rejects it. Help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. Luke's response, I can't go to Alderaan, I have work to do. Numbers four and five, Katniss Everdeen crosses the threshold into the strange world when she volunteers to take her sister's place. 
in the Hunger Games, a battle to the death, and receives Hamish Abernathy as a mentor and coach, someone who knows that other world. Number six, trials, allies, and enemies. Luke Skywalker travels to the Death Star with Han Solo, rescues Princess Leia, and for the first time, meets Darth Vader. Number seven and eight, Bilbo must enter the cave and face the dragon Smaug alone. Numbers nine through 12, seizing the prize, Katniss Everdeen and companion Peta choose suicide over murder, forcing the Hunger Games to stop. They break the system and they're released. They now get to go home, but not as the children they were, but as heroes and icons whose example will spark a revolution. Luke Skywalker returns from the final battle, not as a farm boy, but as a Jedi Knight. Bilbo returns home, but with the ring. You see this, this pattern, this monomyth emerges. I think these same aspects are present in the gospel story of Peter, the young fisherman turned apostle. He's living in the ordinary world, living with his brother, making a life as a fisherman. He receives a call to adventure when one day a wandering rabbi becomes his mentor. Come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. He crosses a threshold when he leaves his hometown, maybe for the first time in his life. He gains allies in his fellow disciples and enemies in the religious and political establishment. He approaches the cave, the thing he most fears, when he hears Jesus speak of his coming execution. Never, Lord, says Peter. This shall never happen to you. He faces his greatest fear and fails when he can't save Jesus from being arrested and is too afraid to go with him to the cross. Even denying that he knows him three times, Mark 14, he began to call down curses and swore, I do not know this man. Peter is the first of the inner circle of the disciples to discover that Jesus has been raised. The prize for the suffering has been achieved. And finally, the resurrected Jesus appears to him from John 20. On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the door locked for fear of the leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed him his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, last week, we got to the end of John chapter 20, which should be the end of the book. The author, John, even takes a minute to wrap it up with a nice little bow. We read last week, John 20, 30 and 31, it says, Jesus performed many other miracles and signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, he's talking about his own book, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That should be the end of the book, right? You get the full story, and the author even stops and says, this is why I wrote a book. That should be the end. But John includes an epilogue. John 21, in some Bibles, is even called the Epilogue of John. And that's today's 
passage goes like this. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Wouldn't it be lame to be known as the two other disciples? Come on, John. Give them a name. We're together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out on the boat. There you go. Nice epilogue. Let's you know that the main characters have made it home safely. Peter has come full circle. He's done a, uh, the hero's journey. He's even got a perfect closing line. Imagine it like a movie. Peter is a fisherman. Jesus calls him as a disciple. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They learn and grow and suffer together. Easter occurs. Peter is empowered by Jesus and is given the Holy Spirit. And now Peter returns home just as the hero's journey says he should. And so he's sitting there with his friends and they ask him, well, what are you going to do now? There's a perfect closing line. I'm going fishing. Cut to black. It would be the perfect ending, right? Uh, having the double meaning of Peter being a fisherman and coming to embrace his own identity, but also embraces new calling by Jesus to be a fisher of men, both at once. And that should be it. Perfect closing line. But once again, the story isn't over. Back to verse 3. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord, because who else would it be? As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around himself, for he had taken it off, he was fishing naked, and jumped into the water. It's a nice little thing the Bible gives us there, fishing naked, it's in the Bible. Go and do likewise. The other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, only about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. I'm skipping to verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time, this is not good breakfast conversation. A third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him for a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, come, follow me. Does any of this sound familiar to y'all? 
Yeah, I see some heads nodding. It's strikingly similar to earlier passage from Luke, right? It's like we already read this. In Peter's first encounter with Jesus, the mysterious man shows up. They haven't met Jesus yet. Gives really good fishing advice. In Luke, they catch so many fish that the boat starts to sink and offers a new role. I will make you a fisher of men and offers a call to adventure. Follow me. And here, at the end of John, Jesus does it again. A mysterious man shows up. The disciples in the boat don't know who it is. He gives good fishing advice. The nets were too full to bring into the boat. Jesus gives Peter a new role. Feed my sheep. And Jesus issues a call to adventure. Same line. Follow me. Jesus takes Peter all the way back to the start. But why? Peter's already accomplished the final step of the hero's journey. His character has developed enough. The monomyth structure has been fulfilled. Why does the author need to include this postlude in the story? He even, the author told us lots of stuff happened that I didn't write down. I wrote you a book that could be read like a book. John tells us this is what he's doing. So why add this piece? Answer, because the story wasn't over. It's like one of the Marvel-style post-credit scenes that sets up the next movie. See, Jesus does three things here, and there are three things that are perfectly in line with the character of Jesus, and there are three things that Jesus always does. Jesus shows up, Jesus forgives, and Jesus calls. And this kicks off a new story. Jesus showed up in a way that was surprising to Peter, but still in line with who Jesus is, like he does for all of us. He reminds Peter of who Jesus is, does the whole mystery man on the lake shore on a bad fishing day thing to remind Peter of who Jesus is to him. And you see, Jesus wants Peter to be a continued part of this story. But Peter has some baggage to deal with. You see, he's still reeling with his trifold rejection of Jesus. But Jesus wants Peter to know that while Peter rejected Christ, Christ hasn't rejected Peter. And that there is still work for him if he can learn to see himself as Jesus does. Not as a traitor, not as a failure, but as a friend, a disciple, and now a shepherd, a pastor, a leader. This whole song and dance of do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, is Jesus helping Peter work through and undo his failure? And with Peter reinstated and given the instruction to care for the church, Jesus issues the words that started it all. Follow me. To let us know, to let us all know, that there's a new adventure ahead. And here's some truth for all of us today. These are the things that Jesus does. Jesus shows up, Jesus forgives, and Jesus calls. Both as a church and as individuals, we are always in the process of encountering Jesus, of discovering Jesus in unexpected ways and places, of experiencing forgiveness, and finding Jesus' love all over again, and finding our place in the story of God, and being called towards new and greater things. 
This is why the monomyth is so captivating, so appealing. We're all on it. This story that we've all been telling is our story. The story of self-discovery and self-actualization, the story of the hero's journey, is also the story of the life of faith. Responding to the call, finding that the world is bigger than we had previously believed, making new friends, finding new mentors, enduring new struggles, learning about ourselves, learning about God, facing that we have been wrong, trusting that God can make us whole. Perhaps you're here today and you know exactly where you are on the journey. Uh, maybe you're in the fun, new, exciting bit, and, and things are still fresh. And maybe you're learning to lean into these new faith-based relationships, uh, maybe with a Sunday school class or a pastor or a mentor. Maybe you're honing a new skill, like study or prayer or fasting. Maybe you're at that darkest point of the journey where you're facing what your faith most fears. Or maybe you're in the middle of the fight of your life and we're not sure yet how this is all going to end. Maybe you're here this morning, but you've fallen off the path. You, you lost the plot. Maybe you lost the battle. Maybe you failed to face your trial or you were too proud to accept the correction of a mentor or to stare your own demons in the face. So know this, wherever you are on the journey, Jesus shows up, Jesus forgives, and Jesus calls. So maybe you're here, and you connect with Peter as you find him at the lake at the end of John. You think you're at the end of your story. Uh, maybe it's because of your age, or your position, or, or you think that you finally found all the right answers. But there's always more. There's always another step. There's always another journey. There's always deeper. And Jesus is always calling. There is no end to the Christian life. Only more new beginnings. Or maybe you're Peter at the beginning of Luke. And you haven't taken that first step yet. The message is the same. Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling all of us to lay down the story that we're telling about ourselves, this is really important. Jesus is calling us to lay down the story we're telling about ourselves, in order to embrace the story that Jesus is telling about us. It's a story of love and acceptance and of confidence and of participation in a great adventure. Amen. As I'm going to pray to give the worship team a chance to get back up on the stage, but as they move, we're entering a time of response. Uh, maybe something today has gripped you. Um, scripture, prayer, music, sermon, community. There, there's as much gospel in a good hug as there is a good sermon. Maybe you found Jesus somewhere this morning. We, this time in the service, we're going to hold space for you to respond, and whatever that means, we will stand and we'll sing together. Maybe your response is an arm around your neighbor. Maybe it's a quiet prayer in place. Uh, maybe you need to come forward and pray with uh, me or someone else. If you move forward to pray, um, a deacon will come find you. Someone will join you in that moment. Or maybe you need to take 
that first step today and publicly answer that call of Jesus and say, yeah, I want in. I want to get on this journey. I want to be a part of this adventure. I want to see what Jesus has for me. We invite you forward. As God speaks, we respond. Our Father, we thank you today that you are a God who shows up, that you have not left us alone, that you are not a God who is far away, but that you are a God who is near and personal and relational, and that no matter where we are in our story, you show up and you forgive. There's nothing too big for you to handle. There's nothing we've done that surprised you. We haven't scared you. We thank you that you're a God that forgives and restores and that you're a God that calls. God who has always called and a God who is still calling. We ask that you would give us the courage to be people who respond. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.